As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome to the latest edition to hear that podcast. Growlin, Paul Yeager Jr. and Jay Morrison of The Athletic. Excited to be with you here. Thursday show, Bengals Trend Week is underway here. And we did, we had Ryan Wilson on on Tuesday, did our sort of look at mock drafts and what to make of the mock drafts and how that fits into where the Bengals are at. And uh, it was a fun conversation to have there. Hope everybody uh, enjoyed it. Um, apologies to the... Fiona the Hippo Hive out there that wanted to voice their displeasure with my reign at the end. But look, just sometimes you just got to speak your mind a little bit. Uh, anyway, Jay, how are we doing? Doing great. Looking forward to this show. I, this is a kind of a a number. When we're talking trends, you're talking numbers. And that's that's right up my alley. I have created uh, a number of spreadsheets for this episode. Oh, man. So <laughs> many spreadsheets. So many spreadsheets to dive into. You know, just it makes you it makes you feel warm and tingly inside when you open up Excel <laughs> and start get, doing the colors, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, it looks just very, very attractive looking and... <laughs> uh well so we're gonna we're gonna dive into that um but also part of this we thought a great way to go i mentioned this uh on tuesday when we're talking about Bengals trends is someone who's been inside of those trends and someone who's dictated those trends uh and so we're we're inviting onto the show greg seaman who spent 12 years uh you know working side by side with duke tobin and that crew um and eventually when hugh jackson went to Cleveland, went with him to Cleveland for a couple of years. And he does work over at PFF now. Um, and, but Greg's awesome and does a, does a fantastic job and really enlightening conversation, I think, about, um, you know, how these trends happen um, and, and why they have. Duke Tobin, I just, I really enjoyed it. And so we'll bring that to you in the middle. I think it'll be something that really gives you a good view of sort of the Bengals front office organizationally. Yeah, and I I I mentioned it on Tuesday how much I was looking forward to hearing from Greg, and it 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 
he did. He 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 brings such a, a interesting perspective from being in the room, in the draft room, um, for all those conversations, and uh, brings up a couple of uh, of interesting points. And um, I think he, the listeners are are definitely going to enjoy this conversation you had with him. Absolutely, we will get to that in a few. But we're going to start here by let's 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 dive into a few trends that are really worth talking. And this is about for you as a listener, as a fan or whatever, when you start thinking about what the Bengals will do, these are just really important to keep in your mind when you start talking about what they care about, what the, you know, the path they like to take. It's important because it it can cross a lot of names off that maybe are ones that you'd think they would have in mind, but you just got to know what the type is and what the strategy typically is. And you wouldn't, there's two There's two levels of trend here, Jay. I mean, there's organizational trend. And when you have Mike Brown and Duke Tobin and and Katie and everybody that have been around forever, you have that. I mean, that's the beauty of doing a trend with this is that you can look at what they've been over a long swath of time. However, as we know, things have been very different here lately. (laughs) (laughs) And with this team, since Zach Taylor, really since we talked about with the 2020 draft, when they kind of first started this new path, they've been a different team. They've, they've acted differently. I mean, if there is one team in the league that you could say is not going to follow who they've always been over a long period of time, (laughs) it would be the Cincinnati Bengals because they've proven that over and over and over again, whether we're talking about free agency, whether we're talking about how they act on the field, whether we're talking about trading up, whether we're talking about a lot of things have been out of character over their, their long view. But, you know, I think it's just a part of how they operate now. And so you never really quite rule out what you thought you knew before as maybe a new trend could emerge i mean you're right the way when you talk about katie and duke and 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 mike and that continuity then you you do have this broad view but i think it's a great example of and you talked to greg about this the the synergy that the the front office and the coaching staff has because that a lot of times that wouldn't be the case if a team had trends and then just because a new coaching staff comes in you wouldn't see that kind of a switch because it's the, it's the scouts and it's the front office and they, they take input from the coaches, but it's not, it's not weighed as heavily. And it's obvious what the the new coaching staff and kind of a, a new direction that you see on on a lot of these positions in the way that it hasn't been a reversal of the trend, but you can definitely see a line where things start to change. No doubt. Let's start with the defensive line. Um, cause it's, to me, it's the, it's the biggest trend. I mean, it's, it's nothing's mind, changed there. It's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, no, it's a mind blowing trend. Um, when you talk about how they have chosen to attack and approach, uh, and draft defensive line, we've talked about it often on, on this podcast, but I just think it's worth a true dive into the numbers to put into perspective, which involves spreadsheets and it makes Jay happy and me happy too. Uh, so the Bengals don't draft defensive linemen in the first round. And in fact, they don't really draft defensive linemen in the second round hardly at all. The the thing is, I mean, you wouldn't think about the Bengals as a team that have had poor defensive lines. The opposite. And and I think partially the success that they've had at different periods of time in hitting home runs has been what's kept that off their radar a lot. I mean, they weren't going to take a three technique 
between 2011 and 2016. <laughs> like they, Geno Atkins held that role. The same thing with Carlos Dunlap and Michael Johnson. Like they, they weren't looking to take edge rushers in a first round when they had, they've had those positions so held down for long periods of time um, that they didn't really feel they need to go in there and then realize the amount of success that they had drafting the position later. Uh, Sam Hubbard, Carl Lawson, uh, you know, third round guys, Joseph Osai looks like he might be the next potentially in that line, third round edge rushers. So Jay, let's put this in perspective for people. Let's blow some minds. Yeah. Since two, 2002, um, the Bengals have not selected a defensive lineman in the first round. Justin Smith in 2001, fourth overall is the last time it happened. You know, I mean, we're pre-Marv. Uh, with this. So how many defensive linemen have been selected in the first round overall in that, in that period of time, 157 defensive linemen have been selected in the first round since 2002, 20 years. The Bengals have taken zero, zero in the second round. They've taken three. They took Devin Still. They took Marcus Hunt. And they took Carlos Dunlap in a little period of time there. 2011, 12, 13-ish, right in that area. And outside of that, no second round defensive linemen. There have been 123 second round defensive linemen selected in that span. They've taken three. So how does that compare, right? Well, you can find a few teams. So Baltimore's only taken two first rounders. Uh, the Raiders have only taken two first rounders. Those are the lowest, the next lowest. But those teams then did have a decent investment in the second round. Baltimore, two first rounders, eight second rounders, right? Uh, the Raiders are really the lowest of anybody, two and then four. So they have six. The Bengals are half of the next lowest to do this. And you have teams that, so I, I created a point system. All right. If you give three points for a first round pick and two points for a second round pick, the Bengals have six points. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The 717 points have been collected. In that strategy, 717 points. The Bengals have six. Nobody's less than 14. Only two, two team, three other teams are under 20. The Bengals have six. <laughs> Early in these drafts, for 20 years now, the Bengals just have not gone this direction. They have not. Does it mean that they won't? No, we opened the show. Right, they have have changed their stripes, pardon the pun, quite a lot in recent years, and so I'm not ruling out um, any first or second round defensive lineman. This is not a blip. This, you know, hmm. you'll hear me ask Greg about this. I've asked Duke Tobin about this in the past, and the answer is always, "Was that that was never the plan? It just sort of worked out that way for 20 years." 
<laughs> it worked out that way for 20 years. There's a lean, a heavy, heavy lean, a preference, and a feeling, I think, that they can find those guys because they have. They have found those. They have succeeded at drafting and developing defensive linemen over and over again in the third and fourth rounds and so on. I did the same thing you did. I I looked at those numbers and um, what I also found interesting is it's not just that they don't take him in the first and the second round. They don't take him in the sixth and the seventh round either. It is when you're talking deal, it's three, four, five. That is their honey hole. They took Wyatt Hubert a couple of years ago in the seventh row or seventh round. You have to go all the way back to 2009 to see the last time they took a defensive lineman after round five. So it that is that's of all the trends, and it's it's not just as I said, we're not just first or second round, but it, they they have a definite sweet spot, and I think you know. Not to denigrate other position coaches, but they've been pretty blessed with really strong defensive line coaches, and that plays into it too. Or you you feel good about uh, identifying guys in those middle rounds that you think are going to fit your scheme, and then developing them because they're you've you've mentioned this all the time. Any anybody that's outside of that first fifteen sixteen of the first round, they're going to have warts, and you have to you have to figure out what you're going to deal with, what what less than desirable traits that a guy might have that you can work around or overlook. And it is, it's, it's stunning that the lack of picks early yet, how good that this team has been defensively like up front on that defensive line. It, it, it doesn't seem to jibe, but they make it work. Well, if you look at current structure, I mean, it's, they pay. I mean, they have, they have invested, uh, you know, Sam Hubbard. Yeah. He's a homegrown developed and retained guy. Trey Hendrickson, they went out to get, I mean, Carl Lawson was in that conversation, but they, they felt a little better with Trey Hendrickson. We've obviously talked about that often in the past. BJ Hill was traded for Larry Ogunjobi was here. They went and got, um, DJ reader. They went out and got, I mean, they paid, they have an expensive, expensive defensive line right now. And yeah, over time, and they paid for it when they drafted it before. Geno Adkins was top of the market. Carlos Dunlap, you know, paid. They gave these guys third contracts, much to their dismay in the long run. But you know, you're talking about they've net, they've been willing to pay, and that's kept those guys for longer periods of time. Some they've drafted and developed. Some they've had to go outside with this recent staff. Um, again, I don't think this means that you can totally cross it off the board but i think if you if when you get push comes to shove and you end up with two guys that are very like players or in the same bucket um for the bengals in the first round you know you're gonna see them opt often to push that down the line because they feel like they can draft and develop specifically now wait they don't they don't need a starter mm-hmm. i mean not this year so if you're talking about develop you're talking about you don't need you don't need a BJ Hill. You need BJ Hill's backup who can maybe be the next BJ Hill or the same thing with Trey Hendrickson or you want to supplement whatever that is. I mean they're they're in a good spot there. You know, they add Basham too. They're in a good spot there at edge, I think. I mean you can always add. They're always going to be open to adding if they feel like a super tradey edge is sitting there. Later on, like, yeah, that makes sense. But 
to think that they would spend a first round pick on an edge when you have Hubbard, Hendrickson, Osai, Sample, you added Bash. I'm like, I, I don't know that I see that. Um, interior, yes. I mean, DJ Reader's in the, entering a contract year. Mm-hmm. BJ Hill needs help, and you're still thinking about long term there too. So to me, that's where you look. The, the one thing I want to say, Jay, and I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, I, will, I want to talk about sizes as well here. Do you have, did you have another thing you want to say about just the general? No, no, just to kind of piggyback what you said, because they they are high on Zach Carter too. So you're talking about BJ Hill's backup, and they're hoping that that he can develop. And uh, the the one thing that kind of I mentioned this on Tuesday's pod, though, is in this period that we're talking about, other than last year, we haven't seen them pick this late. And and this is where the, those defensive linemen typically start coming off of the board more frequently. So um, just from that standpoint, I would and I would I would think maybe there's a chance. But the, the you're right that, that they don't need a starter at this point, even a depth piece you're you're looking at a succession plan you know even a couple of years down the road so it it does feel like the the trend is going to continue this year I, I they they do need help on the d-line but just not it, it wouldn't make sense to grab one that early i think you'd have to have an extreme faller Drop, that they yeah. love i mean and that can happen I mean, you know, that absolutely happens all the time, specifically at the back end of the first round. Uh, you never know who that will be. But, um, I, you know, I, I don't – you're right. I mean, I think that's the situation. All right, let's take a second and switch gears here and hear from a sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover – Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you talk about when you're so whether it's the first round or any round um, at the edge, uh, the we've heard Lou sort of say, "Look, I I can take them in all shapes and sizes." Um, yeah, but you don't. Um, <laughs> the Bengals have a very much a look. It's the AFC North. They want to be able to stop the run. They want to be able to set the edge. They do this contained pass rush. Um, they're, they're not looking all the time for guys that are flying around and leaving openings. Um, they like big, strong, powerful pass rushing guys, and they tend to look the same. Here are the pass rushers they've either paid on this edge or drafted at a decent level um, in recent years. Hubbard, 6'5", 265. Hendrickson, 6'4", 270. Sample, 6'3", 272. Joseph Osai, 6'4", 263. 
Terrell Basham, 6'4", 266. Khalid Kareem was 6'4", 268. Are you 6'4", and 270 to 65 pounds? Because the <laughs> Bengals would love to look at you as an edge rusher. You know, just keep that in mind because, you know, you see, you do see, and especially the way the college game plays, you have all these guys that are like glorified linebackers coming off the edge and, and, you know, the 250 pounds and these are long, like that's the type that the Bengals employ, have invested in, have spent draft capital on at that position have all kind of looked the same. They looked like this. Yeah, and it is interesting because you are seeing the the smaller guys that can and, and even it, you, Carl Lawson felt like that, like a, a smaller, just more of a speed guy. But he did; he had the size too. Um, oh, but he had the power. Yeah. I mean, he was power move too. Yeah, you know, he was so rocked up. Yeah, and um, so and and Zach Carter in there put him. In, I mean, he's more he's inside. He's not an edge, but a six four. Same thing. That they, they, they do have that prototype there. I. I've got the list of all the guys going back to 09 and I can't find anybody that was less than what you mentioned, less than six, three as an edge guy. They just haven't done it. Um, it, it, Interior guys. Yeah. Gino, Andrew Billings, they take those shorter, stouter guys, but uh, it's not quite what it was where it it seemed like they were, they were overly tall and overly long back in the, in the Will Clark, Marcus Hunt. The Zimmer mold. uh, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that that it has come down from that a little bit, but not much. Well, and, and Lou's playing a different style, yeah. and, and I I kept Carl Lawson out of this because he wasn't drafted by them. They didn't invest in him, right? I mean they they chose Trey Hendrickson over mm-hmm. Carl Lawson essentially. Um, so because Carl, you know, six two two sixty. I mean, he, but I, I think he played. <laughs> anybody that watched him knows he played a lot bigger and stronger than yeah. 6260. But that said, you know, the valuing of guys that can that can really set the edge on the as a as a as a run stopper too is is a big part of this. And that that comes with the size. So you ask, what why are you even telling me this, Paul? <laughs> why do I care? Quit rattling off sizes to me. Uh I just want to name you some of the prominent names. Combine I went through the combine list of if you're talking about maybe an edge shows up of players that would fit this mold okay now some of them are going to be gone lucas van ness miles murphy i think are fully expected to be off the board van ness 65272 miles murphy 65268 if those one of those guys had some sort of massive fall out of nowhere yeah i could see the Bengals being like okay uh but that's not at all anticipated um so you get into um, and I'm apologizing. I don't. I'm not great at all these names, and the edges are tough, particularly tough at times. Uh, Louisville Yaya Diaby, six three two sixty three. He's on the bottom end of it, uh, but you could maybe see he still kind of fits. He still kind of fits. Um, uh, Akena Inichukwu, uh, Notre Dame Isaiah Foskey. Now. Is he going to be around in the second round? Is he there at at sixty? I don't know, but six five two sixty four, uh, crazy traits, um, production, all that stuff. Another name, Zach Harrison. Yeah, uh, Ohio State. State people are familiar. He's a little bit bigger, but he would still fit six five two seventy four. Um, Isaiah McGuire, 
And here's the name that I have starred for multiple reasons. Tui Tupoluto, USC. Much noted, Lou Anarumo trekked across our great country to USC's Pro Day, and Tui is about the only top prospect that was at USC on the defensive side of the ball, as did Mike Potts, um, Bengals director of college scouting, who granted goes everywhere, but he traditionally focuses on the Southeast, SEC. I found that interesting for somebody who uh, Daniel Jeremiah recently had him dropped out of his top 50, just barely. Pick 60. 63266. He might be a, a, a tiny, tiny bit on the outside of their range, but he's in it. And he plays with his hair on fire, high motor, all that stuff that they love. I, I just saying, if Lou's going out to USC, yeah, and that guy's there, and he's on this list too, uh, star and circle. Yeah, and we'll see too if he gets a top thirty visit. If he comes to, I, maybe they they took care of that when Lou was out there for the pro day and had him at dinner the night before. Oh, I don't the know old about dinner, that, but the it dinner was, drop. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean that. That is six three. You're right. That is right on the edge. Um, but he's he's one of those tweeners where yeah he'll be there at 28. Would he still be there at 60? Uh, good question. Um, I like Zach Harrison there. I, I, I think that's a, a good spot. But again, it's even does that trend continue? That not just the first round, but not taking one in the second round. If they do, those guys are in play. But you still wonder with with other needs. They they've They've done a good job in free agency of kind of plugging some of these knees with some some one year guys, but they're always looking long term. So uh, it, it, it's going to be really interesting. I know what was it last week? Two week, we one of the the when we were ranking the the uh, the three most likely positions at each round, and I was going D line in every single one of them, and I have started to maybe pivot away from that a little bit. Well, um, you know, the other thing with the second round is. Is it sec? I mean, you're picking 60. Yeah. I mean, you're basically, and we're talking Joseph Osai range mm-hmm. um, in a lot of ways. Um, so you're you're not that far off of essentially a third round pick. You know, somebody with a 2B grade, 2C grade uh, for them is, is, is certainly. So I, you almost view that as a third. Many years that would be a third, and they've obviously gone there many times uh, over the years. So I think it almost because of where they're at, picking so late, you can you can see that as more likely. But again, a lot of other needs to to talk about there. Um, before we get to Greg, I want to I want to close out with some cornerback stuff. Um, you know, another position. You know, they're most likely to to tick off again. We've talked. We don't see safety. We don't see linebacker uh, being a big part of this draft at all. So let's talk about some of the cornerback trends. A few things that we know uh, about Lou Anarumo and about where they stand, and that is, hey, long and fast and smart. Right. That's kind mm-hmm. of like the Lou Anarumo Holy Trinity at this point. And and, and by long, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the longest arm length. I think it means not short. (laughs) (laughs) It means not real interested in 29 and a quarter, right? I think you need to be up in the 31 Mm. area. Um, Now, Chibay Wuzier is 30 and five eighths when when he came in, but he's super fast. They, I mean, they did sign, I, I, I think he's almost a little bit of an exception. I don't think it's a deal breaker 
but it does matter. Okay. And we know speed matters. Cheeto super fast. Uh, CTB and Dax both four three eights um, last year. Tyson Anderson, they have lock, stock, and barreled with speed in their secondary. That's not a secret. I mean, most teams want to do that. Um, but I just think keeping in mind that combination uh, when you talk about trends, fits, leans from the Bengals when they look at who could that be? Couple things. Um, the the last three players, last three corners they drafted with arms shorter than thirty one inches. Uh, Jordan Brown, Josh Shaw, Darquez Denard. Not a now. Obviously, Jordan Brown was a seventh round flyer, and Josh Shaw was was a fourth round guy that that just never panned out. So um, all of those. Well, Jordan Brown was that first draft with the, with Zach's group, but yeah, it's 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 not an ideal situation to have a corner with, with short arms. Another, another interesting trend that, and I don't know if it's, if it's, I have, I didn't look deep enough into it league wide, but Bengal wise, this is the one position corner where they are. I don't know if they, you want to say they embrace it, but they're willing to, to go to look for the smaller school guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Six of the last 11 corners they've drafted have been from non power five schools. Now, a lot of times that's where you find those athletic speed guys that kind of develop as you know, they're, they're not, they don't have the great size. They end up at a smaller school and then they flourish in college. But I mean, you're talking about Jordan Brown, South Dakota State, Devonta Harris, Illinois State, Darius Phillips, Western Michigan, even William Jackson, Houston. I mean, that's not a power five. So uh, that that is uh, another interesting aspect to this is will, will you see that trend continue? And you, we don't have a lot to go on with the Zach group. You have Cam Taylor Britt and you have Jordan Brown, the, the, the two the only corners they've drafted since since Zach has been here. Yeah. And, you know, I think about some of the guys that you've seen have success. I there's one thing about this, and that is look at it, it's kind of similar to the defensive line situation in in that regard, where you're talking about where they have starters in place. You're you're talking about guys that are already there. So um you, you can what? traits guys that are maybe a little bit later just traits guys that that you see as one year away a lot of those do end up coming from small schools they get a year of adjustment and experience to the next step you feel like you see it in them and they can adjust and you can get them a little later in the draft you know whether you're talking about some of the guys that succeeded last year uh Tariq Woolen um Zion McCollum um even even Kobe Bryant coming from UC um, you know, guys that, yeah, sure. They, they came in, they were, they were able to play from small schools, but it, it, you know, once they got going, they got going. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't know where I, I think they're open to taking this position just about anywhere. We just know they typically will lean early if they do go there. So if I, if it's going to happen, I feel like the first or second round is going to be where it's going to happen, but keep, keep some of those trends in mind. Um, I will say again, names, um, I'll say Darius Rush fits long, fast, athletic South Carolina. Um, I, I'm intrigued by Emmanuel Forbes from Mississippi State, yeah. who they've had in long, fast um, ball hawk. He had three pick sixes. Um, so you're you're talking about guys that can play. 
uh, and fit and fit exactly what they want to be there. Another guy that longest arms in the combine with uh, Joey Porter Jr. Uh, Julius Brents from Kansas State. Both those guys thirty four inches now. Julius Brents ran a four five three, so that's a little slower maybe than what you would like at the cornerback position. Um, if you want to go to the flip side, guys that are under that thirty one inch that that you can maybe rule out if this is gonna if this is the uh, line of demarcation for for Lou would be uh, Travius Hodges Tomlinson from TCU, Clark Phillips from Utah, uh, a couple guys that'll be in those those mid the second third fourth rounds that it could be a possibility that might be ruled out with the with the shorter arms. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's kind of the defensive side of the ball. We'll get to the offensive side of the ball after we talk to Greg here. So let's uh, let's bring in our interview with uh, former Bengals scout, uh, Greg Seaman. An old friend of the program uh, because, you know, it's been a, it's been a while. Greg, Greg Seaman was a Bengals scout for a decade plus, 12 years, uh, uh, I believe, as a, as a scout uh, working along with with Duke Tobin and his team and everybody over there. Moved on when he with Hugh Jackson, coached tight ends in Cleveland for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, still still in the mix. We're doing some stuff with PFF now. So, uh, Greg, good to have you on. And, uh, and you know, go, we go way back here. We do. And thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be on. It's an exciting time to talk about Cincinnati Bengals football. It, you know, it is. Um, and, and I want to get to, you know, the, the Bengals are in a, on a bit of a draft heater here in recent years where it's just like they seem to be putting stacking classes. And it felt very familiar to me uh, mm-hmm. because we've seen this organization stack classes before uh, when you were there. I want to start mm-hmm. there. Um, 20, 2009 to 13. Is, is one of the greatest runs of drafting that we've seen. And it created five straight playoff teams. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the most successful runs in franchise history. Um, is there, is, can, can personnel staffs get hot? Like, did you guys feel like in that moment that you guys had something going? What causes, what caused that then? And what causes, what is the biggest reason you think that drafts can stack and, and get hot like that? I, I think that it's it starts with the organization and with the um, commitment that you make to being thorough in your discovery of information, being explicit in what you're looking for. Um, in, in, in that run right there that you're talking about, for example, Mike Zimmer was our defensive coordinator. We were going to be a 4-3 team. And his, his he liked, and we had success, drafting long, athletic defensive ends, guys that could rush the passer, that could bat passes, that could chase the football. So you had Carlos Dunlap, Michael Johnson, um, guys like that. And then you had to have corners that could play in man coverage. Um, so you knew what you were looking for to to build around. Um, the other thing that I, I think we had then was great leadership by Duke in in kind of how we were going to going to um, approach each of the the position groups. Uh, we had strong coordinators. I mean, Marvin was a good personnel guy, and Hugh and Zim were uh, very good personnel guys too. So we were really aligned 
the the personnel side of the building and the coaching side of the building and what we found was when we were in agreement on a player both sides valued that player the same way you rarely missed mm-hmm. and i've been with a couple other organizations where the communication wasn't as as clear uh and you know one group likes this person and another group doesn't like the player and and you kind of have this uh, internal battle uh and oftentimes that results in a miss so uh, there was value in the fact that there was continuity we had been together uh, as a personnel side and the coaching side for a good while we kind of knew what each other wanted and then uh duke did a great job of organizing all of it and being kind of the, the lead all right, let's just take a quick break. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I know we talk about it a lot about the synergy, the synergistic nature of the Bengals scouting staff and and the size of it being smaller, but the reliance on coaches being heavier as, you know, people call about, you know, I've written about how people say, oh, you know, how can you act like that? How, how could they have such a small staff? And their point, you know, Duke will tell you, I, I view it as a feature, not, you know, not a deficiency yeah. because the how can you have someone come in the building that you don't feel like everyone's pulling the same way on? Right. I mean, it seems like that's, that's a really interesting, how, how long did it take to get aligned in that You know, when you talk about Zim came in, I mean, mm-hmm. did it, was there some trial and error in that? Is that thing where it takes, you know, a year or two, or do you feel like, did you know, notice yourself quickly on the, whether at pro day circuits or scouting to be on and be like, that's a Zim guy. That's a, that's a, I know exactly. That's one of our guys. Right. Um, not as long as you would think. And it's in part because of the fact that we didn't have 50 people working in the personnel side. Um, as, as uh, Duke used to say, it's not how many voices in the room, it's which voices in the room. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think human nature is that when you have a large group of people, uh, sometimes certain folks want to stand out. And uh, they they want to uh, kind of uh, enforce their will on another group. It's almost political. I'm trying to gather votes so that when we get down to it, you know, this is the guy. And so when you when you have a relatively small group, you spend a lot of time together, and you spend a lot of time around the coaches, and you develop relationships. And uh, you know, guys like Mike Zimmer, believe it or not, is a very clear and concise communicator. <laughs> yes, he is a very clear communicator. <laughs> if he thinks something's agree. messed up, he'll just tell you. Just I, tell I, you. No, that's not what we want. <laughs> so, uh, so it's not. Uh, it wasn't hard, and and Marvin did a really good job of kind of listening and and then voicing his opinion. 
Pete Brown, the late great Pete Brown, mm -hmm. uh, was uh, he spent every day of every year looking at film of football players <laughs> and developing a board. He was just a wealth of information, uh, you know. And we had Bill Tobin, uh, Duke's father, who you know had a my God, seventy years I think in the league. Uh, so we had some real uh, mentors and uh, you know uh, wise men to go yeah. to if there was a, a conflict. Uh, and then Mike handled things so well. He listened. And uh, when there was, uh, when everyone was together on a point, we, we moved forward. When there was real disagreement, he would simply say, you guys need to go back and work this out. You, yeah. Come back and, and see us. So um, when you have a relatively small group, to your point, uh, you can develop uh, those kind of relationships pretty quickly uh, moving forward. You know, and it's so easy to correlate that to where they're at now, yes. you know, where you have the same staff and they've and they've they have thrived and talked so much about the relationships across the building. And there's just mm -hmm. such a sense in these drafts that they know exactly what they're looking for, much like you guys had not just not just in that span, but specifically in the, when you had so much continuity on staff there during that yeah. run and when with Zim and everybody else, it's like. You, you can you can sense how the same thing is kind of happening right now, which is why, you know, when people talk about um, the value of Lou Anarumo and Brian Callahan mm -hmm. and Zach Taylor and Darren Simmons all being for five straight, I mean, it's insane. It never happens. Five straight years where you have the head coach and coordinators and your GM uh, and ownership yeah. all the same. It's so rare. The value of that isn't just in season. It's right now. It's right Absolutely. now that everybody knows exactly what they're looking for. No, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, I am not there. I, I, I chat with the guys uh, over there from time to time. So I don't have real insight, but what's obvious from the outside looking in is exactly what you said. They have a continuity in place on both the personnel side and the coaching side. And they have come to one vision of these are the kinds of people, the kinds of players we're looking for. Sometimes clubs, they complain about things. We we used to laugh. You know, if you want to have a fast team, go draft fast players. If you want to have a smart <laughs> team, draft smart players. If you want to have a team that doesn't have trouble off the field, draft guys that don't have trouble off the field. But sometimes um, differing opinions and evaluations of talent relative one player relative to another gets in the way of that with certain organizations. And you don't see that right now with the Bengals. They have uniformly stayed to these are Bengal players. This is what we're looking for. So that's a real tribute to ownership, to Duke and to Zach and their staffs. And you can tell that with the way that they are constituted and the way that they play. I mean, there's a very yeah. much a sense of people that are leaders and team and, and value all of that stuff. And, and, uh, uh you know, creating a chemist, creating chemistry in the locker room that can try to raise all boats. I want to ask you this mm -hmm. because you have a, you worked alongside Duke forever um, and I think to some people, he's this, you know, he's this, per he doesn't want to be out there. You know, right. he's not somebody who cares about headlines or look at me and what I did at all. In fact, the, maybe the, the most opposite of that amongst everybody, uh, amongst all 32 teams, what, what made working with Duke unique and what do you think has made him so successful? I don't think Duke has an overwhelming ego. Yeah. I don't think Duke, you pointed it out. I don't think Duke, uh, you know, lives to have his name in the headlines. It's just the opposite. He wants to do the job. He wants to do the job well. Uh, he is loyal to the people around him. 
Uh, and he wants, uh, above all else, he wants the Cincinnati Bengals to win a championship. And so that's kind of his, as I see it, that's kind of his value system. Um, you're, he's not a guy, and I've worked with others, that you leave a meeting and they're going to go to their office and close their door, and you get a sense that they're in there looking for their next job and <laughs> that they're trying to promote themselves in some way. Uh, it was no, That is not the case with Duke. Duke is about one thing. Let's do this job. Let's do it really, really well. Let's win a championship. And uh, when you have that value system, it's pretty easy to be around the guy. Yeah. You know, there's something that's the first time I've really thought about it through this lens of the value in working with a guy in a general manager role that has no need or desire to leave, you know, that, I mean, and, and you get that in Cincinnati when you have it structured the way it is family ownership, people that are around, they stay right. forever. It, it's, it's rare. It's so rare. Now it didn't used to be as much, but now it feels so much more, rare i guess there is a lot of value in that going back to some of the continuity and comfort um it to, to make decisions that maybe are better for the long haul and, and sometimes aren't as good for the short you need only look uh, a little bit to the northeast to pittsburgh yeah and this is exactly the model that the pittsburgh steelers have employed since the 1970s mm -hmm. and it's worked pretty well um when you when you're working with people that are looking for their next opportunity, they're not always fully committed to the one in front. And I, you know, I'm, I'm old school in this regard. And I think Duke is too. do your job, do your job to the very best of your ability. And if you want another opportunity, it will probably come to you because of the work that you've done, but don't shortchange the organization you're with. And uh, so I see that play out there. You know, there's a reason they're they're very talented. There's a reason that they're rarely uh, penalized during games. There is a reason you don't see a lot of mental errors, you know, blown coverages or guys turn loose in protection by a missed assignment. Um, they've got, uh, they know what they want in terms of the qualities of the players they bring in, the coaches they bring in, and they're right on target. All right, let me ask you about a specific trend. Okay. How is it possible that a team can go 22 years without drafting a defensive lineman in the first round? How is it possible? <laughs> that is, uh, well, it, it's possible because uh, when you value uh, the first round, um, quarterbacks, corners and pass rushers mm -hmm. and offensive tackles uh, are oftentimes going to be at the top of the mix for the reasons that are about your success and also about the economics of keeping your quarterback alive and, <laughs> and healthy. So uh, yeah, that, that's an odd statistic. It falls and you're going, well, that's really weird. Uh, I don't think that was a plan. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, uh, uh, yeah, it's, you know, what a lot of times what folks don't realize is that when you're, when you're looking at a draft, the first round, um, you have to put a, uh, an expectation with that. So your expectation for a guy taken in the first round is that he is going to be a starter pretty soon. And that he's going to have an impact in a positive way, it might be a Pro Bowl kind of player. Mm -hmm. And 
when you look at it that way, I don't think there's ever been a draft where there were 32 first round picks. There are 32 guys worthy of that description. Right. Uh, most of the time, the first round goes like 18, 19 deep. And so there's a reason that teams like the Patriots in all those years, you know, they're picking late, but or they're moving back out of the first round. That's because the 25th guy in the first round is the same guy as the 20th guy in the second round, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So uh, if there's not a premier defensive lineman that just is so much above everyone else, there's a reason a lot of times those guys end up going in the, in the second round. That's a big round for defensive linemen, I think, traditionally. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, there, and there also is something of, well, this ability that they've had there, you know, and you guys had of finding, I mean, Geno Atkins, one of the greatest picks in NFL mm -hmm. history in the fourth round, you mentioned yeah. already Carlos, Mike Johnson, they, Carl Lawson. I mean, there's been a run of, it just seems like over and over again in that mid there's been a, an ability to pinpoint. And I don't know if that goes back to what you said of the true understanding of exactly what you need and the traits that you're willing to sacrifice along the way that obviously if somebody had all of them, they'd have gone in round mm -hmm. one uh, or what it is, but it does seem like there's been a, a reliance of, you know, them saying, well, we'll find, we know we'll find somebody. We know yeah. we can. There's a, um, there's an art to that part of it. Um, in your internal discussions, you assign a, a grade and a, a draft position evaluation to every player for you as a team. We would take this guy in the first round. Mm -hmm. But you also want to have a sense of how does the league see him? And it may be because of the number of guys at his position. Uh, or or maybe you're thinking his his skill set is unique to what you want in your system. And so you can make an, uh, an educated guess that, you know, I don't think anybody else is going to take this guy ahead of our spot in yeah. the second round. We probably, he probably is more important to us than he is to the league in general. Um, so uh, that's, again, I think where experience comes in and intelligence and, and you know, Duke grew up doing this with mm -hmm. the with bill and uh you know the browns and the blackburns have they've devoted their life to it they don't have other businesses that they're running they're not the corporate owner uh so there's a wealth of uh, experience and information that way yeah the the gut of the league uh, of feel for the league is so yeah. something that a lie i'm assuming takes a lot of the new young GMs that are that are out here now. It's such a, such a young group now. Um, it, it takes it takes some time, I would assume, to to get that get that feel. I mean, you can think you have it, but until you go through it and maybe get burnt by it a few times, you probably uh, don't really get the true gut feel for what the league is always thinking. I, I, I think one of the things that it makes it difficult for some organizations is uh, corporate ownership that they aren't really football people. They've been successful in everything they've done. They've made billions of dollars. And sometimes they come to their new role with, uh, well, I've been successful with everything I've done. I'm going to fix it. Wait till you see what I do this league. Mm -hmm. And um, so we see a lot of churning with new owners. You tend to see a lot of turnover and, you know, well, that coach didn't do it. This GM didn't do it, you know, and we're pulling guys out. Um, in that environment, oftentimes general managers will take chances. They'll take a shot. 
they'll take a risk. They'll spend some money on a free agent that a more heady general manager would not have done. And it's in, I've got to win now. Mm-hmm. And so you get back to uh, stability and you look at the organizations that have been successful over a long period of time. And there've been people in place there for a long period of time. They don't feel those pressures. They make judgments that are more reasoned. Yeah. And so much of it here, I mean, and this is kind of along the lines of the, the defensive line trend is, is understanding how to win places. And, you know, one thing I'm, I wanted to ask you, are there AFC North body types? You know, because the thing that I've heard Zach Taylor said over when he first came in was, you know, he didn't realize at first, you know, mm-hmm. You have to be built a certain way to play in this division, different than a lot of others. For you guys, whether we're talking about receiver or running back, I mean, Duke has always mm-hmm. preferred these big body running backs. Mm-hmm. Um, even up front, uh, you know, are there certain body types that you just you got to be a little firmer on your bottom line of prerequisite size in this division and with this team? Yeah, if you watch uh, Baltimore Raven or Pittsburgh Steeler tape and you got their defense on and you have the end zone view from behind them, mm-hmm. you're always impressed at the width of the butt of the <laughs> interior defensive linemen. They're huge. These are big physical people. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, the, 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 the division has always been um, a, a division of big guys the the bengals lines the best lines they've had were big guys andrew whitworth was a big man uh orlando brown is a big man and uh so yeah it's been that way it's been a division of quarterbacks tough running backs uh big linemen on both sides of the ball uh it's been a division you know Historically, when when we were going through it, uh, when I was there with the Bengals, it was a division of safeties because you had Palomalu and and uh, Ed, Ed Reed, Reed in the division, and he had two Hall of Fame guys running around. And uh, uh, when the Bengals, you know, when you go back in with David Fulcher and those guys, they had these enforcer type safeties. So that's changed a bit because more wide receivers are on the field. Safeties have gotten a little smaller. But yeah, there are types. Uh, you, you know, the easiest when you plot out preseason uh wh- how you would like the year to go every team says the same thing we need to win our division mm-hmm. that ensures you're in the playoffs it ensures you a home playoff game then if you're in the Bengals situation where you're one of the elite teams you'd like to win enough games during the year to ensure home field so you don't have to go to kansas city or someplace and right now it's those two teams and maybe yeah. buffalo right behind them um so you look first at your division what do we have to to do in this division to win it who are we playing against literally who do we have to uh draft to is there a player that you took and i'm i'm asking you to pull some recall from many drafts in many years and if you're like me i file a story and i forget what i wrote about yesterday sometimes but like uh, is there a player that you specifically remember standing on the table for that got selected and having particular pride over like you, you, you bet on that guy. You felt like that was going to be the guy the whole time. And you can pop your chest out a little bit now, looking back on it. Uh, not a superstar, but Giovanni Bernard. Yeah. Uh, Gio was down at the university of North Carolina. And, um, when I went down there, I liked him very much on film because he was this multi-skilled guy. He was a, a, a better runner than people thought. They could really catch the ball, and he was great uh, in pass protection. He also could return punts and did that at North mm-hmm. Carolina. Um, 
but when I got down there and you do your research and you're talking to people around the building and the support staff and things like that, um, I had never heard so many people, which what I what appeared to be real sincerity, say, Gio's the best. This guy is like the heartbeat of our football team. He's so reliable and you know, his his story is so interesting. And he's just uh I had the uh, uh the video guy said, you know, Gio's the one that when everybody goes home, he comes down here to the video office and asks me to pull out certain film for him. And he goes back down and watches it when there's nobody here, but the coaches are upstairs in their offices. So you just had all this background. And uh, Hugh Jackson was coaching our running backs then. And I brought, uh, I asked him to come down to the North Carolina Pro Day just to spend time with Geo. And uh, so that, that went really well. And, uh, Hugh uh, said, you know, thank you. This is this. He's exactly <laughs> what we're looking for to to kind of fill that role. And then brought him back and Duke liked him and, and Mike and Pete liked him. Um, and and so you still, uh, you know, you don't bat a thousand. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they still come in and either they can't play or they're not very good people. And he was everything that you wanted him to be. And he did it for a long time. Uh, yeah. He, he rarely said anything. Uh, he uh, you know, took care of his family down in South Florida. Um, he drove the same old junky car for God knows how long because <laughs> he didn't want to spend money on a new car. So yeah. he just liked you know just everything about him, and he had a really nice long career. Mm-hmm. So uh, Gio's a, a favorite. He stands out. Yeah, I mean, as solid as solid as it gets, you know, reliability is is probably yeah. number one there. You always knew what you were you were getting from Gio. Um, you know, and and even even though he was quieter, there was very much a charisma to him. You know, he's mm-hmm. so interesting once you certainly got to know him. And and hey, wore the captain C, uh, yeah. and and you know was a I'll never forget him hanging in there during that first year uh, with Zach Taylor in 2019. And you know, he was the one who was who was out there and and standing up for everybody and and powering through and fighting to the end. And that was a team that notably fought to the end that year and i think he was a big he was a big part of it yeah what rb1 that year you guys you guys were aggressive with it weren't weren't afraid to go get him either so a testament to everybody for standing on the table for the right guy um greg i appreciate the time it's been awesome catching up with you um and uh best of luck with with everything you got going on great grandpa now right Yes, thank you. Yes, the first uh, grandchild, baby Theo, and now we can't. Uh, the, you know, Theodore is an interesting name because uh, everybody has an opinion. Is he Theodore Theo Teddy? Teddy. Uh, I, his his father right now is occasionally referring to him as T Bone. Uh, so <laughs> I I don't know which way this is going to go. So I'm kind of in the you know I'm in the Teddy camp. I think. Yeah. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll see at some point as a teenager, he will probably look at us all and say, this is, <clears throat> this is, this is what you should, call this is me. what you should call me. It's so funny. Uh, that is so my, my youngest daughter will one day know that she was supposed to be Theodore. She was, we had a, we, oh, yeah. we were, if we were going to have a, we, we're, we, we didn't have any, any, uh, any boys. And so, but if we were going to have a boy from the day one, we had Theodore, we loved Theodore. We loved the idea of Teddy, love yeah. that name. And, uh, just never, never came to be. So Mabel and Rose are here with us, but, uh, it's, uh, mm. but I love Theodore. It's one of, it's my favorite boy's name. Very cool. That very, is awesome. Cool. Well, congratulations to you. And, uh, obviously your three lovely daughters and, and you're Thank living you. the life playing golf and, Living on the lake, and um, I'm jealous. I'm jealous of you. You got it all going. Thanks for spending some time with me today. 
Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure. All right. Uh, really a pleasure catching up with Greg. Great to talk with him. Um, Jay, did you have a, uh, I know you mentioned some, we, we've mentioned some stuff before the interview, but did you have any other uh, kind of takeaways from that? The AFC North likes big butts and you cannot lie. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it is true. I mean, and, and he, he, I mean, he, he talked about the Ravens and Steelers, but you look at Domata all those years. I mean, that it, it is a, an absolute template in this division. Yeah. And there is, there's a certain way that they have formed this team. I mean, it's just, it's, it goes back to that edge conversation, bigger, stronger, physical. They're not interested. You know, I, I think it's just, I think it's a lesson that this coaching staff learned when they showed up in this division. They, I think they showed up and thought maybe it was a, a little bit of BS that you needed to come in and be this big, tough, physical team in the North. And I think they quickly realized, Jesus, uh, <laughs> you really have to, in order to withstand these, uh, you know, these rock fights and, and, and that's proven in, in, in the way that they've gone and the way that they've invested in recent years. Um, I, I loved you mentioned it earlier, but the talk about continuity, when we talked about the run from 09 to 13 and what sparked that. And he said, well, Mike Zimmer, right? I mean, that's the Zimmer run. And when you know, I think that's such an important point, right? When you know exactly what you're looking for as a scout, it makes it so much easier to know what warts can be tolerated, what traits you really have to focus on, and what kind of player will work here. And to have that clear communication, to have that continuity is how you have great runs of drafting. And so while we can talk about the unparalleled almost continuity on this Bengals staff of five years of front office, GM, head coach, coordinators in Cincinnati in particular, where it's so valuable and there's so much crossover and conversation, having that is a part of why teams go on hot drafting streaks and have success if that's the way you operate. And that's the way the Bengals operate in a huge way. And so then it makes sense. And I think it's a part of the reason why there should be a confidence and a benefit of the doubt in what they're doing and, and, and the success you probably expect them to have when it comes to this draft or, you know, with everybody still here. And even, even after Zim left, I mean, you, then you had, Paul Gunther taken over, who was a Zim disciple. And that's yeah. so that continuity, even though it's a new person, it's still kind of the same mindset. Um, so it is, it is really important. And I know people are, you know, I, I don't know if they're upset. They're, they're, they're sorry for Lou that, that he didn't get the Arizona job, but this is absolutely a, a big thing for the Bengals to have this kind of continuity. You mentioned it five years in a row that no one else can say that right now. Now that the chiefs lost Eric the enemy, the, the Bengals are the only team in the league that have had head coach and all three core or both offensive and defensive coordinator, even though Darren extends that by a mile. Uh, but to have that, that top three in position five years, only team that can say it. Yeah. And then when you, when you throw the fact that the front office has been the same the entire yeah. time too, is even more ridiculous. And I think it's a part of where, again, he, the line that I wrote down when he talked said, you know, when both sides are in agreement, we rarely missed. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's the truth is, is they can pinpoint that so easily now um, inside of that room. They, they know what, it, they know what a player looks like that will succeed in this system. All right, let's move over to the offense. Um, Jay, you dove into running backs and created a beautiful chart. <laughs> um, <laughs> because we, 
We know they're going to take one. We know the likelihood of it coming in the first round is small. You're going to be having to figure out what you're willing to sacrifice and deal with, what traits you're going to be valuing. Um, what, what, can, what, what can we glean from the history of the athletic profiles of who they've heavily invested in and sort of leaned into over the years? Well, even before you get to the the physical profile, it's it, this is like the ultimate boom or bust position for them. They, uh, you're going back to Bernard's Bernard's got two thousand nine. They take him in the second round, or they take him in the sixth round. Mm-hmm. The, the, the the one exception out of all the guys they've drafted Mark. since oh nine, Mark, Mark, <laughs> you there? <laughs> Mark, uh, Walton. Mark Walton, fourth round, two thousand eighteen. Everybody else was a sixth round pick. Or a second round pick, and there's only three second round picks, and that's Mixon, Jeremy Hill, and Giovanni Bernard, three in a row from 13, 14, and then 17. So, um, you know, with with the questions around Joe Mixon, with the with Samaje moving on, seems like second. Uh, still, second round seems too early this year, but uh, it that is where they they like to hit when the, when they have the need and they go for it. Um, you. They, they they do I don't know that I, I they like the bigger stronger more physical backs but there's there are still outliers there I mean Mark Walton was small he wasn't even five one or I mean he wasn't even five ten um, Travion Williams Geo was a smaller guy he was stout and he was very physical for his size um, but I, I don't I don't know that there's I, you're right. I've got this spreadsheet and I've got all the data, but I just, you, there's not that one trend that you can zero in on because they have been all different sizes. I guess, you know, if you, if you want to talk one, it's, it, they, they love Oklahoma backs with Samaje and Rodney <laughs> Anderson and Joe Mixon. And, uh, you know, there's another one coming out this year. So my guy. Yeah, your guy. <laughs> so, um, and you know, the most recent pick, Chris Evans, not a big guy, more of a receiver. I so I don't, I don't know. Did I mean? Am I missing one? Is there, is there a specific trend that you think physically that that where they hit in running back? I don't think that they, you know, everybody's over two hundred pounds. Now that doesn't mm-hmm. eliminate a ton of names. Um, but if these guys that are on the smaller end, I mean, you mentioned Geo Mark Walton that are two two o two when they come out, whatever. I mean, they're also shorter, so they're more compact. There's strength there. You know, I, I don't think height matters, um, anything like that. But I do think a certain amount of power that they want that person, durability they want that person to have. When you're talking, I mean, look. Six seventh round picks, like the, I, I throw that group out. You're just taking chances on guys that have, you know, hoping for something. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's that's fine. The point is when they've really invested it for the most part. Now you heard Greg Seaman talk about Geo. I think you learned a lot about why they invested in Geo, despite the fact that he was a little bit smaller. He had so many other things that paid off for them. And then you look at Hill and you look at Mixon, and there, and there is a type there. You look at the guys that have been their leading rushers guys they've played with i mean it's there's samaje they've they they just there's there's a type here and they're looking for a pass protector Mm -hmm. i mean they need somebody who can who can do that's not a throwaway trait now is it what they're looking for number one no but you can't not be able to do it because they need that i mean they've 
proven they don't have trust in Joe Mixon. Can can you have any trust that Travion can do it? We don't. I mean, we don't certainly don't think they have. Chris Evans is going to be in in line for that, or somebody they have trust in that. To me, it's a, it's a glaring spot that's missing here for them. Is that I don't know that they have somebody they feel like can step in and and be what Samaje was for them. And they don't need the greatest, um, but they do need somebody who can do it. As far and I, and if you're if you're showing up uh, at five eight one seventy nine in the NFL and in the AFC North, you're not doing it. So some names that are on the small end there that uh, that are names that a lot of people like: Keaton Mitchell, East Carolina, Deuce Vaughn. Kansas State, uh, Devon Achain, Texas A&M. These are all guys that are that are at five eight or less and one ninety or less. Um, now I think that's a cutoff probably where you can probably cross some of some of those names off just on the fact of of size. And then with the bigger guys, you get into well, what did they look like as pass pros? Dig into the tape. How much could they do it? It's the concern with my guy. Eric Gray at Oklahoma is a, I mean, if he can't do any pass protection, he love everything else. He catches well. These people miss at the second level. You know, he, he does all those, all the other things they like. But if he can't pass protect, it's like, ah, can you do it? Maybe that's why he's there later in the draft. You know, the, the trade off to that, to the bigger, stronger, thicker running back is the, the lack of that, that top end home run speed. And you do see that in, in the the Bengals history going back to 09 with they, they, they've drafted one running back that ran better than a four or five at the combine. And yeah, that was Mixon 4.45. And you talked about it Tuesday. That's they're not looking for the guy with the home run speed. They they know what they need and you, you got to be able to pass pro. And so if 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 you're looking at the you're looking at the running back list and you're you're looking for the burners that's that's not exactly fitting the template that they're looking to draft but they'll take it i don't think oh, they're yeah. passing but I, it's not going to stop them point being if you see a guy ran a 456 talking about what tank bigsby from auburn right 456 it's not crossing anybody off anybody's list in cincinnati okay no i mean the, uh, the super fast ones are the ones that typically are the the ones they stay away from just because they want the thicker stronger frame yeah uh um, they embrace taking this the, the slower guys jeremy hill was 466 yeah and and so it, point being uh, that's great uh if, if you can run fast no one's turning that down uh but i do think that there's more of a um they're going to care more about Ulis elusivity rankings, right? If we're going to get into the PFF uh, signature stats. Um, they're going to care more about stuff like that. They're going to care about making guys miss in space, catching the ball, uh, things like that. You know, um, speed is great. Uh, and if you have it, that's fantastic. But I think they'd rather you can make a guy miss on the second level or make a few guys miss on the way through rather than run away from everybody uh, in the long run. If you're, if you're picking between the two, which at the where they're probably going to be selecting a running back, you're probably picking between the two. Um, okay, let's go into wide receiver trends here for the Bengals. Um, and I think there is, there are some. One, we know there. We always joke about the when the Bengals open the locker room the the week after the draft. Who will everyone be walking towards? Because somebody got their position drafted. Someone <laughs> ha- got their clock ticking. We've seen it every, over the years. It happens every year. Um, this year is a chance it could be Tyler Boyd, right? Yeah. Um, when you talk about slot, receiver, heir apparent, we've talked a lot about that. 
when they've needed a slot, when they've talked about slot receivers over the years, Tyler Boyd, Mo Sanu, Jordan Shipley. Now, these are all players drafted before Zach Taylor even got there, so it's fair to grain of salt this. However, uh, Tyler Boyd, um, the 55th overall pick, Mo Sanu, 83, Jordan Shipley, 84, uh, second, third round, okay, slot. Uh, Tyler Boyd, 6'1", 197, Mosinu, bigger, 6'1", 211, Jordan Shipley, 5'1", 193. I, I have a hard time putting Shipley in the mix so long ago, so different. Um, that said, um, I, I this is not a team that's going to value smaller receivers, even in the slot, and maybe especially in the slot. They want receivers who can block, especially at the slot, not afraid to get in there and be physical enough to dig out a safety or, or come in and, and chip off the side and not get blown up and do those types of things that you see Tyler Boyd do regularly. you got to have a certain amount to you in order to do that. Now, it's particularly relevant this year. This draft is loaded with tiny slot receivers. <laughs> I mean, there are so many of these guys that are fast and jitterbugs and can make you miss, but would the Bengals be willing to go small at that spot they've never really done it it's not been something that they've valued it's hard because we're talking about tyler boyd who's been in this spot for so long so he's kind of this prototype doesn't mean they wouldn't go a different direction just because they've had one guy in there the entire zach taylor experience um but i do think you can judge a little bit about what they want um they don't want to replicate john ross i'm sure there's a lot of thoughts that his size is part of what made him not work and injuries happen and all that stuff. And he's the outlier for them amongst receiver draft picks, right? Mm -hmm. Of size. Everybody else is big, bigger, stronger, things like that. John Ross was the one outlier and um, he's the one pick they probably most regret over the years. Absolutely. I mean, even look at the, the ones that, that didn't quite work out. I mean, Cody core, Josh Malone, Auden Tate, those, those guys all had really good size and, I I wonder, and I and I, I I just I you see what Zach did with Jamar in the Buffalo game about moving him all over the place and bringing him out of the backfield, and it, would they be interested in that a smaller guy that could kind of be your chess piece and move all around? Um, I I don't know that it, the the reason they did it with Jamar is because he's so good and and he he attracts so much attention and it puts such a a stress on the defense to figure out where he's at and where he's going. But I do wonder if, if maybe this is that the next evolution of the Zach Taylor offense, where they, they look to get one of those little guys that they can move all over the place. If, you know, for this year, it could be just the one you, you plug in. But if you're looking at a succession for, for a Tyler Boyd, then, then you, I don't think that is what you want. I think you want a guy with a little bit better size that can do what you said. It goes back to the running back position too. Blocking is always going to be a key component of this. Um, so it there are there's plenty of options out there to to go with the smaller speed guy, but it it's going to be interesting to see whether they they actually pull the trigger on that. I think it'd be a lot of fun to see to to, to see Zach open to the offense even more and, and get a guy like that in there. I'm just I don't know that. This is the year for that. So let me, there's a lot of popular names that we see when you talk about slot receivers or receivers that people could target mid rounds that are 
in this very that are very much in this small mold that would not necessarily fit a Bengals type. I'm just gonna rip off a bunch of them here. Uh, Tank Dell from Houston is a tantalizing prospect. Watch the watch his punt returns. What watch him in space? He's ridiculous. He's also 5'8", 165, and it's just I, I don't know if the Bengals can do that would do that would do that i should say and they can i don't i don't know that they would it would be very out of character um jordan addison usc um who's a you know projected early pick charlie jones purdue who you know troy walters has been up to visit up there at purdue um 5 11 175 uh jalen hyatt tennessee early pick uh local tyler scott cincinnati you know 5 10 177 um, Josh Downs, North Carolina, Zay Flowers, Boston Zay, College, yeah. five nine one eighty two. Trey Tucker from UC, five nine one eighty two. Marvin Mims, who's a freaky athletic profile, five eleven one eighty three. You're getting closer. You're tolerating it potentially more. My guy, Jaden Reed, you know, five eleven one eighty seven. I think he's right on the edge of of the size that they okay you you could probably get away and convince when you watch the punt return ability and and the way he moves in space and his savviness in the slot um you could you can convince i think that's probably the line i i i'm i just don't see them signing off on a 58170 player if they think that there's any kind of a real future that he's going to be the next tyler boyd i just i i don't see that from them yeah, that's why it, it, it's a fun piece to have. But if you're if if you're looking at a succession plan for Tyler Boyd, you want another receiver in his mold. Um, the, the UC twins, and they're not twins, but they're they're both very similar profile, speed, everything. Uh, that 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 would be interesting just because of the local angle. And but I again, I I think that you're you're gonna you're if that might be the double up where you you take. A receiver that fits the Tyler Boy mold, and then you try to get one of these smaller guys that a little later in the draft, which would rule out a lot of the guys you mentioned. Those those are gonna go to other teams a little bit higher, but maybe they they go for that like a Mario Alford that they took in the seventh round, a small guy, never worked out. But that's where you want you might want to take a flyer on a guy like that in the sixth or seventh round, where it's not gonna kill you if he doesn't pan out. Yeah, I mean, I think when you get in the sixth seventh round, anything's on the table. You can do anything. You can find one trait you love and and take a shot. I don't. I never fault anybody for anything that happens at that point in the draft. You're just you're just seeing what's there. So. Uh, I mean, you're not you're not talking about real value necessarily in those spots. Uh, no offense to guys that create it, uh, but you're talking about you got to create it. You're not talking about early plans or even plans in the next two years when you're talking about seventh round picks for the most part outside of special teams and things like that. So, um, yeah, I'm with you. I just it's just something to keep in mind when you start talking about what does that look like. What, there's just so many of these smaller slot receivers this year. If the Bengals are looking to go that direction, and it's certainly on the agenda, uh, they're not forced to. Uh, they don't have to. They We thought they would last year, and they didn't. Um, and they wanted to, but they just didn't fall their way. Maybe a little bit more urgency this year, potentially, if it falls right to them. Uh, just keep in, keep in mind that when you start talking about size and kind of a lot of the way this class, there's a lot of slots, but they don't all... Uh, look the way you expect the Bengals to want them to look. All right. Um, anything else? 
Do you want a tight? You want a tight end at all? We were talking before. There's not really a ton of tight end trends other than they've been aggressive historically at the position. Uh, we know that Gresham, Eifert, Croft, Uzama, Sample have all been sort of an overdraft, um, an aggressive play. They've been more aggressive than most at that position, and obviously front and center what they'll do there this year. But certainly something to keep in mind. But we've not. You know, they haven't necessarily been aggressive with this regime outside of the sample pick, and that was the first year, so there was still a lot to learn there um, about who they really were. Um, so I, I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing a major trend at tight end where I'm like, oh, yes, definitely this or that uh, or whatever. It's, it's the most wide open of anything, I think, for them in this draft that's kind of front and center. You know, if, if you're looking for a spot where – they might break a trend where they should break a t- trend. It's a tackle. When I was going through this list, I was amazed. I mean, we all know how that much they struggle to draft tackles. And looking at the the height and weight of guys that they've drafted, I mean, you would think a team that's that's really struggling would would say, "Go give me the the biggest guy I can get and and work with them." And that has not been the case at all with this team. Um, you know, we. We had Kent on Kent Platty. Uh, was it last year? Yeah. The the math at math, math bomb. bomb does the Raz scores. So he's got he lists every player at each position, and then he has a color coded scale where you know if they're in the green, they're at the upper end. If they're yellow, they're in the middle end, and if they're in the red, they're at the lower end of whatever that category is. Um, of the last 11 tackles the Bengals have drafted, eight have been in the red for height and six have been in the red for weight. I don't know why they're they're so reluctant to to go with the, the smaller tackles, but now your guy, Dewan Jones, I mean, that blows that out of the water. You're going to go get a 6'8 guy? I mean, maybe that is an area where they uh, a trend maybe needs to go out the window. I and mean, this whole purpose of this is to – kind of talk about the trends and which way they might go. Uh, but this is one where I think the pivot needs to happen. And you've seen it too, even with the signing of Orlando Brown. I mean, another massive man that uh, the, this, this could be a, a turning of the tide with what they're looking for on those, uh, on the bookends of the O-line. Listen to Greg Seaman. You need to like big butts and you cannot lie. It's all there's <laughs> that's to right. it. I, well, I think it is. I mean, that's that's the move for them. It's the type of tackle they're looking for now. They want these guys that are bigger. If they're going to run this gap scheme, they're going to try to have firm pockets and not worry as much about um, having speed and running out in space. Um, this that's, that's what it's going to look like. I, I'll say this. If they do take a tackle, um, he will not be in the red and wait. He, it, maybe... maybe or height. I'm going to, I'll say that I'm not going to like bet any, I'll sing the opens on it. Uh, but <laughs> I, I will, I will, I would sing an open about, about weight. He would not, this isn't, you're not going to get somebody who's like 298 uh, or 302 uh, showing up. If they draft a tackle, you're going to see a Jones, you're going to see a right. You're going to see one of these more big, powerful guys. Again, I feel like we're repeating ourselves a lot because that's what they're willing to accept. That's the that's what makes that appealing for them and not for others. And that's how that guy would still be around at twenty eight or hell, maybe even you're talking about sixty or something like that. I just I just don't see them going with the nimble, light on their feet, right tackle. It wouldn't fit who they've become at this point. Um, all right, Jay, 
Good trend show. Appreciate it. Always love trends. Hope you enjoyed all your spreadsheeting. Shout out to Greg Seaman for joining us. Yes. Awesome to have him. We are diving uh, deep into the the, the goodness uh, next week. We're going to go. The Beast will be out. So if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, uh, you really, you're just, that alone is reason to be. Um, the Beast will be out. We'll have Dane Brugler on our show. Uh, next week, we're going to have Brandon Thorne on our show, who's a you know trench aficionado. Really excited about chatting with him about all the tackles and the three techniques and specifically. Uh, he's done a ton of work on them on, on his website. So look out for all that coming your way on next week's show as we continue to dig into this draft. And then before you know it, Jay, players back in the building. Yes. Uh, Was it well, April I'm gonna guess 17th? I, I can tell you some that won't be there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna guess uh we won't have a chance to talk to seventy three or five. Uh however, uh a lot of the players will be back in the building for the yeah. offseason program starting later this month. So we very much uh look forward to that. All right. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh we will talk to you next time on here the podcast ground. Have a good one, everybody. Mm-hmm.